Hello and welcome to Higher Voltage, a podcast that explores the ins and outs of higher education marketing and touches on all aspects of the business of higher education. We are brought to you by eCity Interactive. For more than 20 years, eCity has been creating marketing strategies, websites, and digital experiences for higher ed institutions, large and small. Inspired by challenge and proven by results, eCity can help you solve the greatest challenges facing your institution today. My name is Heather Dotchell. You have most recently encountered me leading the marketing and communications teams at two Philadelphia area colleges. Welcome to Higher Voltage. Diversity and inclusion are not new ideas in higher education, especially with regards to university and college communications. Many schools have had diversifying their student body as part of their strategic plan for years. How do we, as higher ed communicators and as human beings, try to capture our aspirational campuses without creating materials that grossly misrepresent our campus demographics and without exploiting our current student population to do so? We have two great guests today to explore not only our physical representation in institutional communications, but also why this topic reaches much deeper into our campus culture. Kevin Tyler currently serves as the Insights Director at Ology, a branding and marketing agency specializing in higher education, arts and culture organizations, and nonprofit projects. He lives in Columbus, Ohio. Janice Chang McConnell is the Assistant Director of Graduate Enrollment Communications at Syracuse University's Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs. Originally from Taiwan, she now lives in central New York. Kevin, tell us a little bit more about yourself, particularly about your current activism in the space of diversity and inclusion. Sure. So um, thanks, Heather, uh, for having me. This is a really great opportunity. I'm excited to be here. Um, you know, I'm from Columbus, Ohio. I've lived here all my life. Um, I joined Ology about five or six years ago and learned how much uh, I love higher ed through that through the work I do now. Um, in my role at Ology as Insights Director, I um, basically read, write, and research all things higher ed, uh, from admissions trends, enrollment trends, advancement, uh, and everything in between. Um, so I'm basically like the office nerd when it comes to higher ed conversations. And so I'm, I'm really excited to be able to dip in and out and, and uh, lend expertise to certain projects that make our work smarter uh, for our clients. So I went to the University of Pittsburgh. I have a degree in English writing and spent several years in electoral politics at the state, local, state and federal levels, uh, working for candidates and issues up and down the ballot. Um, and then spent several years in marketing and communications roles at a couple of uh, large corporations in Ohio. In terms of um, diversity and inclusion, though, it's a, a topic and an issue that's uh, near and dear to my heart. I do my best to raise issues around diversity and inclusion when it's time to raise those issues. Um, as a as a, a black man, openly gay, there are lots of dynamics uh, to navigate in certain situations. And so I try to make sure that the conversations that I'm in uh, end up being um, comprehensive and inclusive and equitable and consider um, all the outcomes that uh, benefit the most people. And so that's what I try to do in my professional life, in my personal life, um, and as a human. Janice, can you share a bit about your journey into the world of U.S. higher education and your professional path? Sure, I would love to. So I came to the United States as an international student back in 2010. Uh, I went to Binghamton University in central New York. 
Before higher ed, I was a media manager for a small independent romance publishing company. I ran their social media channels as well as did some graphic design and copy editing. Absolutely loved that job. Uh, and then my higher ed career started in the Office of Continuing Education at Binghamton University. I worked with adult learners, veterans, local business owners, and I've since worked as a marketing and communication specialist at both the undergraduate and graduate levels, uh, first at Binghamton, then at a small private liberal arts college, and now at Syracuse University. I studied creative writing as an undergraduate and then went on to get my MPA. This summer has been one of great unrest, but also of great hope. Our country is still so embroiled in the politics of other and the blatant racism that we hear about day after day is just overwhelming and repugnant. That said, I also don't remember a time when so many people seem to be getting motivated to do something, whether it is protest in the streets, call and support political action or use social media as an actionable force for good. It's a time of reckoning for our campuses. And as we dig deeper into our deep systematic domestic racism, the tendrils of how intertwined this is in daily life are exposed. So as we were planning what topics we wanted to cover in higher voltage, diversity was always high on our list. And we have a myriad of episode ideas to explore higher ed's relationship with our student populations. This particular podcast genesis came from some social media exploration I was doing. Um, I found many conversations from students of various diverse backgrounds talking about how they felt exploited in college and university communications materials, becoming what they were felt were token faces, um, oftentimes for years to represent a campus culture that didn't exist. I read these and my heart dropped, literally, um, wondering if I were guilty of that without intention um, and, and of causing such hurt. So let's talk about how we can make sure that we are never excluding, but neither are we exploiting our community. Let's start with a quick primer. What is the difference between diversity, inclusion, and equity? Many of us tend to use these interchangeably, but they mean different things. Uh, Kevin, can you speak to the difference? Sure, I think that there are subtle differences for different people around what these words mean. But to me, diversity in and of itself is the way that we exist in the world as individuals, right? Like the things that make us up as people is diversity. I think when you start talking about inclusion, it's about being invited to tables of influence or decision-making uh, or other sort of um, authority or power. Um, and I think that that um, is a different kind of level. And then when we talk about equity, that is about understanding some of the obstacles that are attached to who people are just by birth or by where they live and endeavoring to remove those obstacles. So someone has, so everyone has an equal starting line um, and equal access to an opportunity. That's how I look at it uh, in terms of my work. So these are not simple questions uh, and simple answers, but you can certainly start by understanding them in a metaphor that's simple. Um, so think of a party. Diversity is who is invited to the party. Inclusion is during the party who is being asked to dance. And equity is for those people at the party who don't wanna dance, do they also have a way of enjoying and participating in the party? Diversity, inclusion, and equity are what I call threshold concepts. They start a conversation, but the dialogue cannot end there. You can't toss these words around, and that is all the work that you're doing. These are concepts that are based in human relationships and human actions, and they can only grow with very intentional human-centered design. You can't say, oh, let's hire a diverse candidate, air quotes here, and that'll be good enough that'll make us inclusive. No, that's not good enough. 
A resource that I find helpful here is the Great Unlearn. It's a community-funded educational platform highlighting academics and experts of color, talking about racism, discrimination, and, and the, the intellectual unlearning you have to do, the emotional uncoupling um, that you have to do to understand what got us here as a nation and where we can go. Uh, the creator's name is Rachel Cargill, who is an author and academic herself, and you can find it the Great Unlearn um, on Instagram and Patreon at The Great Unlearn. So as I listen to the difference in definition, but also perception for um, these concepts of diversity, inclusion, and equity, we're not just talking about um, abstract things here. We're, we're talking about people. When we look at the demographic shifts that are coming up in higher education, how do these shifts in student polls interact with these ideas on campus? Yeah, I think this is going to be really interesting, right? And this has been um, predicted for years now. And I think that higher ed institutions who haven't been planning for these demographic shifts, not just in, um, you know, race and ethnicity, but also in um, income levels and international students and all these other kinds of um, ways that we uh, bring diversity and inclusion to uh, to a campus, um, that needs to be strategized. That's not something that you can just say, you all are welcome here, um, because there's going to be a new vernacular that needs to be introduced to talk about what services and supports that are available on a campus. You also have to create those services and supports on your campus to back up the messages or the, or the pictures and what you're telling people about the community and the culture of your, your space, because if those supports aren't there, the indication or the assumption is that this is not a very diverse place. And so there will be no, like new needs for colleges to, and universities to meet for new people that institutions may not have had to deal with before. Um, and so it's gonna be a, an intentional, it's an intentional act to start to attract um, new kinds of audiences because the deliberation of those conversations depends on understanding who they are as people and attracting them to places that fit, that they fit in best. And we talk a lot about that on the undergraduate levels. Janice, do you see similar demographic shifts in the graduate and adult populations? Yes, definitely. We are having this conversation right now, very much still in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. And before that, the, the graduate studies environment was already seeing uh, some shifts in demographics. But now, after the given the pandemic and, and the, the political climate, I think there will definitely be, be a lot of people coming back and reconsidering graduate studies as a way to move forward, as a way to shift careers. Uh, our favorite word of the word, uh, our favorite word of the year is pivot, uh, to pivot their lives and and careers, and using graduate studies as a as a jumping off point. And so we will see, I think, a lot of not only a lot of undergraduate students who are going straight into graduate studies, but also returning adult learners who will need different services that have not been there before, who will need different advising um, directions that helps them see how graduate studies can put their lives back together, as it were. If I may add just a just a, a thought there, and I think that adult learning population, adult learner population is important uh, to consider uh, because they have different needs as well. And some, uh, there are obviously, we all know that 
there are millions of people who have some college and no degree. So when they start to come back, if and when they start to come back, there will need to be different systems in place because as you get older, new needs um, are need to be met. And there are there are new challenges around how time is managed and you know flexibility is gonna be the number one priority for these folks. And so when we talk about diversity and inclusion when it comes to campus communities, age is gonna be a factor as well because as these jobs are being lost and people need to be upskilled or reskilled, it's gonna have to, uh, institutions will have to uh, cater in a different way to a different group of people. I think it's important to also think about the fact that a lot of people are going to be returning to the higher ed uh, space with a lot of trauma, with a lot of trauma that's been felt by the loss of their jobs or the loss of family members, and that is going to manifest in different ways for 18-year-olds versus 28-year-olds versus 35-year-olds. And I think higher ed has a, is in a unique position to be able to accommodate these students and help them as opposed to put them into a classroom and expect them to be able to adapt to whatever that classroom currently looks like. And I think it's, it's really a time of opportunity um, in this particular aspect. So let's talk specifically a little bit more about um, the groups that we keep alluding to. So, of course, our initial reaction when we talk about diversity is saying, okay, let's make sure that our materials all have a wide gamut of faces and races and ethnicity in the background. They all betray my age, you know, the Benetton ad of, of, of higher ed publications. We're just not talking about students of color and making sure that they are represented in our materials. What other groups do college and university marketing and comm teams and enrollment teams too, since they work so closely with the recruitment materials, need to make sure that they are including in these materials to make sure that they are um, inclusive of all of our different populations, not just simply ones breaking, broken down by, by virtue of color. I think there's always a discussion uh, within marketing communications teams about who to display uh, and who should be the face of the university campus. And um, I remember because I worked at a very small private liberal arts college, we were less than 500 students. Every single ad that we created, every single brochure, poster that featured students, we had to make sure that it actually was a student of the major, of the, uh, the geographic region, of whatever it was that we were making the creative for, the student actually was someone um, who fit the bill because we students would call us out. I remember running a transfer campaign for uh, transfer students and we had a student um, as the face of the campaign who was not a transfer student. And that I think if I remember correctly, that was just because we didn't have, we were so small and we had a handful of transfer students who couldn't make it to um, to the photo shoot session. So we we pulled another student who was not a transfer student, but it was um, our campus community very quickly responded and, and students were not okay with that because they did not authentically represent who they were. And, um, and I think that not only shows that students are paying attention to what you're putting out there into the world, but it also shows that they care about how they're represented to the outside community, especially if you're a smaller school and the, the fit and feel of your campus is what you're, the way that you're leading your admission communications. That is, that is so important to make sure that whoever it is that you are putting into your imagery, into your, your videography, they are actually who you say they are. I think I think it's really important also obviously understanding all the different dimensions of diversity that uh, a, a institution is um, trying to recruit is first and foremost. 
I think the second piece is that the imagery that you're using is going to be really important. I mean, I think for a long time in higher ed, I mean, when you think about higher ed, um, I think a lot of people think about the, the five different kinds of people sitting under a tree in the quad and like inside of a view book. And um, for a long time, that kind of um, image worked because it wasn't only about um, the college itself, but it was also about the idea of college and this intersectionality that exists on a college campus. But I think what people often forget is how important the language is that they use in their materials, right? And so when we're marketing for a college, um, it's about how broad or how many people we can touch with a single piece, right? A view book, there's usually one version of a view book, right? And that, that version is supposed to um, connect to, engage, and attract so many people. And is that really fair? Is that, is, is that view book really built to do that amount of work, right? And so I think um, I think language is important. I think understanding student experiences, I think understanding where people come from and understanding how historically different kinds of people come to in in industries or institutions that we trust and have a different kind of feeling about that, right? So, you know, historically, you know, African-Americans, Black people couldn't be educated with other people historically. And so we have a whole other system of higher ed in HBCUs that was that exists now. And so what does that mean when you're when you're courting students to a predominantly white institution? There are different conversations that have to be had um, that you, that they would have at an HBCU. So I think we have to I think the industry needs to prepare itself to be um, held more accountable, because let's be clear, we are in an age of simple validation, right? If someone hears a message from an institution, it is easily Googleable to see how accurate that message is, whether it's on via social media or some review, whatever it is, professor reviews, it's all easily uh, confirmable. And so institutions are going to have to educate themselves on how they want to attract and recruit um, these students in really, and I hate to say this word, authentic ways that are valid and real. Okay, so how can institutions both acknowledge they're not as diverse as they should be, or there are historical reasons they are not diverse, while encouraging their prospective student, faculty, and staff to join their community? I love um, the point that Kevin made. Uh, at the end of the day, higher education is a product, and how do you how do you market that product to um, your potential your potential buyers slash customers? Um, can, it really frames um, the way you can approach something like a view book. And I think you don't have to come from a perspective of automatic assumption of guilt that you are not diverse. I think it, it, that's, um, that's the lazy way out. I think you need to have a discussion uh, or higher education leadership and, and uh, the relevant offices need to be around the same table and talk about why are we where we are? Why, is, why does our student population look like this? What have been the previous enrollment practices that have led to this? What are on-campus retention uh, activities and programs that have led to certain students thriving on campus while other groups of students did not? Um, I think it has. It can't just be a, oh, we're not diverse enough, quick slap, slap someone in a wheelchair on, on the brochure. Like that, that, doesn't, that doesn't work. That's not authentic. <laughs> um, and that, that is, um, it won't get you very far because like Kevin said, students are very good um, on Google. They're very good at peer-to-peer -peer marketing is so powerful and there are so many different ways they can get that. So, and the, that what that means is there are many different ways your institution and your branding can lose your control of the narrative. So I think you should 
you should try to where you wherever you do have control over your own narrative over how your institution and your campus is perceived you should do a really good job a really deliberate and intentional uh, job that comes out of discussions featuring multiple stakeholders in the community not just the marketing director not just the admissions uh, vp it has to be everybody around this everyone who is involved in the student's journey on your campus that includes campus life residence life alumni relations, career development, all those people who touch a faculty, of course, who, who have a part in the student's experience on campus should be part of the conversation in some way. I, I agree with that. I think, I think also important is understanding the intent around the desire to diversify, right? And so for so long, rankings ruled the like everything about higher ed and um, inherently rankings are exclusive of other kinds of people in the higher ed space right higher ed was not made for diverse communities originally higher ed was made for the learned white men right and so as as the as the world evolves and as the industry of higher education evolves um, there are new intentions about diversifying a campus and I think that like again I come back to language I think um, thinking about the benefit of diversity to students on a campus, like the balance that we talk about that in, right? And so it, it is, it comes from a very Anglo-centric perspective, right? Like what is the benefit of having a diverse student? Well, students can learn um, from other cultures. When you say other cultures, it, it puts uh, the white person at the center of that conversation. And as a higher ed institution, that's not who it is anymore. Um, and so I think it'll be super interesting to see how what the new center of that conversation looks like and how it is messaged to the people they're trying to attract. I absolutely love that. I think there are so many nuanced and subtle ways that we are sending a specific message to our students that we're we just because we've been so immersed in it as marketers and communicators that we we just don't see it anymore. I would like to share a resource that I find very helpful. I attended a presentation by Dr. Scott Olivieri at a high ed web conference several years ago. He's currently the uh, director of web services at Boston College um, and you can find his presentation slides um, on the high ed web website uh, on their online journal link. But um, he spent his entire doctorate uh, capstone researching websites from higher education institutions and specifically looking at diversity and how diversity, first of all, what does the institution think diversity is and what that looks like on their web pages. Um, and he talks a lot about the concepts of design. For example, if you're using an image of a faculty of color on different optimizations of this web page, does that, is that picture cut off? And if that picture is cut off, that means that, um, the only thing you care about for that faculty is the fact that their skin color is different or their skin color is not white. And so the these very small, subtle ways in which we are we are framing um, how we think about diversity is super important. It's it's a really fascinating uh, point because it's if it were not for his presentation, I would never have thought about, I mean, of course, imagery is important and you don't want to use the same photos of the same students again and again, but also, the way that you're using them, where you are using them in relation to the content on the web pages and 
the subliminal messaging of of what that what that means to your audience. So he, I remember um, Dr. Olivieri talked a lot about where if there's a state, first of all, if there's a statement for diversity and inclusion that tells you what the institution feels, what their stance is, and where they put that diversity statement. Is it, first of all, do they call it a diversity statement or do they call it something else? And do they put it under campus life uh, right on the homepage, or do they bury it somewhere under about history, dean's office, and it's like six clicks away, you know, and all of that tells the students who might be looking, and students are more and more, they are smart. These kids are so smart, they're so savvy, and I cannot wait to see what they do in the next five to 10 years, but they are looking for stuff like that. I think that raises some really interesting ideas, and I think, you know, broadly speaking, higher ed marketing, again, broadly speaking, is about signaling, right? You are, as, as people are flipping through your materials, the goal is to have them see some part of themselves in your materials. And, and then, you know, further, they see themselves on your campus. And what that has the potential to do is easily slide into stereotyping. And then that is, the message shifts significantly from oh, this must be what they think about this kind of person on their campus, if this is who they're highlighting. And so the, the message gets um, uh, uh, warped in a way that is not beneficial for the brand. And then if they do further research and understand how structures exist on, on um, college campuses and where diversity might sit, because oftentimes diversity offices sit in either student affairs or HR, and those are the ways that we measure it and filter it. And that isn't, doesn't give diversity a comprehensive view of what's going on on campus. It doesn't give people um, at departments and other places opportunities to respond to things that are happening on campus. And it, it could mean that there isn't a campus-wide plan about how we're going to approach this issue. Um, and so that signaling um, is can either benefit the brand and the effort of recruitment, recruitment and engagement, or it can be detrimental to everything that you're doing. Putting out content and stories that represents its community in a really faithful, direct, non-pretentious way is MIT. Uh, MIT, it just across their website and their social media channels, they are leading with stories. They're leading with the people and the personalities and then letting everything else fall where, where they may. And I think that's so powerful and because your students and, and your faculty and the members of your community are doing interesting things. And if you focus on that, on highlighting that and the contribution, their contributions to the community instead of the different diverse, quote unquote, diversity factors that you're checking off the boxes, you know, it's it's it can be so powerful. And uh, the their social media, the MIT social media is led by Jenny Lee Fowler, who is herself an incredible Twitter account to follow. Her handle is at the Jenny Lee. One of my absolute favorite social media accounts to follow, especially in the space of diversity, inclusion, and equity, is the Meet NYU uh, Instagram account. They do such a great job of demonstrating diversity without calling any of it out. They can tell stories about interdisciplinarity with images of um, an international student wearing a lab coat um, and also doing an extremely intricate ballet move, right? There's this idea that 
who we, we bring our whole selves to this experience at, on this campus without having to talk about the slices and dices of who we are as individuals. And that, that in, to me, is like a, what a successful approach to diversity, inclusion, and equity looks like, where you're not even having to use the words, you just notice it immediately. And I think that's super helpful. Like their study abroad programs, who they have doing um, their Instagram stories. It is a fascinating and fabulous example of how, what great diversity, inclusion, and equity um, strategies look like on social media. This interwoven deep communication strategy is something we need to take notice of because so much of public social media is beyond our control. I'm specifically thinking of the Black at Institution hashtag from this summer. First, let me say that we all need to read these messages with open minds to find out where we need to do better and how we can help affect change. Second, when our diverse campus experiences are authentically integrated into our communicated identity, per your examples, we help to solidify our evolution as inclusive institutions who value all of our campus community. Yeah, these, these new ways to let institutions know what their students need um, is really fascinating to me. And I think um, that if if you don't know if your institution has one of these black ad accounts, you need to find out immediately because um, it is now part of your marketing plan, whether you like it or not. Um, again, um, this is a very weird, live in a very verifiable world. And if a student gets your view book or email or whatever, visits your website and there's a story being told there that they happen to run across a very contradictory story on while they're scrolling through Instagram, you're going to have a problem on your hands, right? You're going to not get that that uh, prospective student, you, you might lose, um, you might lose prospective donors. There will be a consequence of some sort, and, and if you don't know what those consequences might be because you don't know these accounts exist, um, you're behind um, already. And I think about this new version of protest. You know, I, I think about you know the '60s when there were sit-ins, and there were sit-ins. There have been sit-ins like in the last five years as well. But this new way of communicating need and this new way of communicating what the real story is on a campus is extremely powerful, and people are connecting over that. It is a movement that I'm not sure higher ed was ready for, and they have no control over it. And it's just I, I'm interested to see what happens next. Social listening is an incredibly powerful tool to help inform with the those parts of the narrative um, that have to do with your branding and marketing that are out of your control, that are peer contributed, that are community driven. And I think going back to uh, what we previously talked about in terms of operating from a position of guilt, just because these stories are out there doesn't mean that these stories are representative of all the stories of similarly looking people you don't get to define student experiences. Students define student experiences. And if you, if everything, if all the programs that are coming out of your diversity inclusion office or multicultural office or whatever it is that you're calling it is purely reactive to the things that you, you are hearing, um, it, you, you can't stop there, keep going, dig deeper, talk to more people, include more stakeholders in your, in your, I hate the word focus groups. <laughs> Kevin hates authenticity, but I, and I hate focus groups. But um, just, just just call them conversations. <laughs> um, have conversations with people. Don't assume that you know what their experiences on your campus must be like. I think that's a great point. And I do have to give a shout out, a major shout out to Liz Gross and her team at Campus Sonar for excellent, excellent social listening toolkits and consultation that they provide to institutions across the country. So I have to give her a shout out. She's a, they have a great team over there. We've spoken about who is represented in marketing collateral, but who makes these choices and whose biases, subconscious 
and conscious impact these choices? So um, not too long ago, I wrote a piece for uh, Campaign Monitor that um, kind of talked a little bit about this. Um, as a marketer, as, a, as a, a gay Black marketer, I have an opportunity every single day to ask new questions about how we're um, demonstrating uh, what happens on the culture on a, com on a college campus. Um, and as marketers, we all have that opportunity every single day to ask new questions about how we're telling the stories of our campuses. Um, it, all it takes is one brave person to say, maybe we could you know, change the dynamic of this image by putting something that um, actually exists here, number one, um, but also changes the way that this image or this piece might be received, right? Um, it doesn't mean that that new that piece that has this new um, image needs to be a targeted mailing to that kind of the, the, the people who fit into the audience that you have now depicted in this piece um, but it does change the conversation around culture and openness and how welcome you are right but because having the traditional picture of those four or five people under a tree the benetton ad as heather uh referred to earlier is no longer actuality um and so how do you can how can you reframe the conversation around uh, admission and, re and recruitment, but also how can you reframe your brand as one that is open to all, right? Um, that is, has the supports that back up this message that you're putting out into the world. Um, and that that's incumbent upon the people who are developing the materials. That is a conversation, if you don't understand the dimensions of the, the these diverse audiences, then you can't make smarter decisions about who to portray and who to feature and who to lift up in your materials. And that's just kind of a um, a low that's low hanging fruit that uh, can be taken advantage of at any point. I guess the other thing though is to is to make sure that this is like I, I said it already, but to make sure that this actually exists. And I think the intent has got to be the primary driver. Are we doing this because we actually want to make people think? that we are who we want to be, or are we doing it to chase a ranking or to chase um, a box, a, a group of people because we have a deficiency in that space? Um, I think um, that's, a, that's a, a conversation to have among your teams. That's only you can decide what, the, what is driving these uh, new decisions. But if, the, if what you're depicting does not exist, um, that's a major foul. And, and making sure it exists is incumbent on each of us when we're going through policy at institutions and, and all of the pieces behind the scenes that, that form the identity that aren't out there in a public uh, brochure. So if you're sitting around the table and um, I'll pick on dress codes, you're talking about dress codes on campus. You cannot dictate, for example, that sneakers need to be of a certain quality and this and that, because what you're doing there is taking these assumptions of the uh, resources your students have and putting them in a very visible way. Like those things matter. And as somebody, as part of that community, if you are truly trying to make an inclusive space, we have to be willing to speak up every step of the way from. Uh, policy meetings to that glossy brochure and and everything in between uh, in order to do that. While it is it is incumbent on the people of a campus community to to create inclusive spaces and brave spaces, it is also incumbent on the administration and the institution overall to set those people up for success. So 
not having repercussions for speaking out, not having repercussions for being brave and asking those questions that have been never been asked before. Being able to say, hey, we've been we've been doing it this way for a long time. Should we look at doing it in another way? That's where that's where it starts. And also training, providing training and professional development opportunities for your staff to help them learn about all these things so that they are not having to meet while they should take it upon themselves to be better student affairs professional professionals because that's the field they're in. They also need resources. They need support from from the top down to be able to succeed at, at the highest level that they can. So training your staff to be able to have different perspectives about what being a first gen student looks like, what being an international student looks like, what being a differently abled student looks like is super important on informing their, how they support. Because these are people that are interacting with your students on a day-to-day -day basis, and they will become part of the narrative that the student forms about what their college experience is. It's really important that we have that substantive support on campus. It's not enough to get them to come to campus. Okay, we attracted you here. Great, fantastic. Go have a good two or four years. That doesn't work. So what what kinds of things do we need to put in place on our campus? What do we need, um, especially as Marcom people, because really we're, we're relationship people when you boil everything down. What do we need to advocate for on campus to make sure that we're not simply drawing people in and then leaving them to hang? Oof. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot there. But if I could just go back to the last question just for a hot second. There are campuses that have very little racial and ethnic diversity. However, there are other kinds of diversity that exist on that campus. So you might need to look, redefine what you're looking for and start to tell those stories. And when, I, and, and when you tell those stories, if you happen to have an LGBTQIA plus population, then I would encourage you to tell those stories outside of June, which is typically known as Pride Month. If you happen to have um, African-American Black students telling their stories outside of the schedule we are comfortable with telling those stories in, right? It's about not highlighting the difference, but making, to me, but making sure that the difference makes you part of the community in ways that is special and very deeply connected. I understand the, the desire to support, you know, national months of Black History Month and, um, you know, Hispanic American Month and, and you know, Gay Pride Month. But that isn't, those aren't the only months those stories can exist. And if we make it more normal and regular to tell all of these stories all of the time, then maybe those months don't even need to exist because we're changing the conversation about it. And so if you're highlighting an alum or um, or uh, a student or whatever, or some sort of stakeholder, and there are differences that they are comfortable with talking about in an interview or whatever else, do that. And it will help build the you know inclusion or the equitable or the diverse brand that you're trying to create. To me. Yeah, I have, uh, I have, I'm going to drop another great resource. <laughs> uh, Julia Golden Battle, who is the Associate Dean of Students at the Massachusetts College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences. Um, she's on Twitter at Julia R. Golden. She said that diversity and inclusion work is both a process and a goal involving uh, self-reflection. And I think what Kevin said about portraying your campus in a way that is true to you by redefining what diversity means to you, by redefining what your goals are. And it's important because it's both an ongoing process that will always be evolving and changing as different 
generations of different groups of students come to, through to your campus it, and also a goal. And I think having that sort of two-pronged approach with this um, can help inform your strategy in a better way, in a more sustainable long-term way. So who is responsible for making sure that this representation happens? And I'm not just talking students here. How do we diversify our decision makers? I think that's a really great question. I think that's a question that um, I think about a lot. Um, again, I'm a, I write a lot of stuff about higher ed. And one of the things that I strongly believe in is that um, there should be a cabinet level DE&I officer at every single campus. And I think what that does is moves it out of a department or moves it out of a function of a part of an institution and raises it up to the level where it, A, has priority, and B, signals to prospective students and their families that this is important to the institution. A cabinet, a president's cabinet is essentially the priorities that, uh, or what the, that person as president thinks is important for their institution. Um, and so when you see someone who is a DE&I person sitting right next to the president, that is an indication to me that they have their ear on very important issues that are affecting the campus. And not only do they have their ear, but they also have purview or visibility into the entire campus. And, um, you know, there's a, UK does a really great job with some of this stuff and they have weekly meetings and here are some of the things that we're hearing on campus around some groups of students and that they have, um, they're unhappy about these things. They can start to strategize how to meet the needs that they're, that these students um, are expressing so that they can get in front of it. And that's what, that's what that gives you when you have someone at the table who's only thinking about DE&I work. Um, otherwise, when it's buried in um, like HR or when it's buried in uh, student affairs, it is only measured by how many people do we have that look different if it's in HR or if it's in student services, it is, do we have all the right kinds of gay groups, black groups, women's groups, whatever other groups, but it's about having the full complement, but not what those services often offer. Um, nor are those services or those groups always equipped to handle problems that arise from groups that have legitimate concerns about some of the, cu the cultural characteristics of your campus. So those models, while they have worked for a long time, diversity, equity, inclusion has now elevated itself into another stratosphere. And if higher ed institutions aren't restructuring themselves to, to answer that or to recognize that, um, they're going to have a, a, a huge hill to climb, a huge hill to climb. Yeah. Who's on your board of directors? Who are you inviting back to campus as com uh, commencement speakers? Who starts off the year? There's a really great report that came out of um, the University of Missouri hunger strikes and sit-ins um, uh, a while ago. I think it was a five-year look back. Um, and one of the things um, that was mentioned in that uh, in that report was that um, oftentimes the when something like something around race pops up on a campus, um, the immediate response is to set up a task force. And um, a task force is a process-oriented um, asset. And process is not really always the right response to an emotional situation. And so what are the new ways you can create more safe spaces around campus to have conversations that are important to move your campus forward? It might mean the president needs to come and have a town hall and have an honest conversation and be open to feedback about the way the campus is run so that people can get that out. And because when people are sitting in pain and in a problem, it's hard to see the solution. But once they get that out, 
you can start to plan for a better future. Um, but so often because it's higher ed, we try to shove a thing into a process and process can sometimes exacerbate the issue and, and cause a hotter fire. There's this book that I love by Brian Stevenson called Just Mercy. And he talks about this idea of being proximate. And I think when it comes to structures in higher ed, uh, intentionally or not, there are ways that presidents can build layers between themselves and their issue, the issues that exist on campus. And if we condense all of that and get the president proximate with the campus community more so than usual, then the president can see what's going on. The president, him or herself, can see um, what kinds of new innovations around um, diversity, equity, and inclusion can be um, spun up to meet new needs. It is, I understand that presidents are super busy, but these are, these are people's lives. They're bringing themselves to your campus and you are, they're under your care. And if they're not getting what they need, presidents need to know that as soon as possible and not have um, the, the offshoot of a task force because it just doesn't, it's not, the, it doesn't, it doesn't match. It's like apples and oranges. I love that. I love that because the task force indicates that it will, that it's a problem that can be solved and then done. And it's a one and done. Um, and it's, it's definitely, it's a, it's a journey. Like, um, uh, Julia Golden said, um, it's a process. It's both a process and a goal. It's a, both, a um, a journey and a goal. And I worked with a uh, director of diversity and inclusion at an institution previously. Her name is Leticia Fossil. She's now at Stonehill College, um, who would hold listening hours. And that's that's exactly what they were. They were just listening hours after um, major campus events, after tension between student groups happened in the community that she knows about. Um, it, these would just be spaces and a time where students can come and air their minds and talk about what is going on and how they feel. And I think that is so often, so often when something conflict, when a conflict happens on campus, we want to immediately resolve the situation and lower the tension and make it go away so that it doesn't happen again. But a lot of times it just, it doesn't happen like that. It's like Kevin said, there's a lot of emotion at play that you have to help the students work through and it's an important part of the process. I think it's gonna be really important, especially moving forward that institutions have uh, their finger on the pulse of what's happening in society. Um, as institutions of higher learning, I think there's an expectation that um, there's a response to things that affect human hearts, right? And things like Black Lives Matter and making sure that there's a statement that goes out that you stand behind and that you're supporting with um, actions and plans to, you know, reach the goals that you've laid out for yourself are going to be very important because if you don't do those things, you are sending a message by not sending a message at all. And so, um, you know, a couple of years ago, there was a, it was a sexual assault and, you know, have, have, institutions um, made statements about we don't stand for this and here's what we have done uh, we here's what we put in place to combat some of these issues similarly it's in the conversation now is about black and other people of color bipoc individuals and so um, making those statements is an indication of where you stand on an issue and you might lose people for that you might lose you know there 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 could be um schools just based on their geography that you're just like we don't do that and and that's fine you, you will attract the people um, who you want to by either saying something or not saying something. Um, and if it is an expectation, I think, um, to respond 
um, as institutions of higher learning to, to situations like this. Um, because it, it could have imp implications for donors, it could have implications for students and their families, it could have implications for the surrounding community um, of your campus. Um, cities and towns are also stakeholders for your campuses. And if people aren't um, don't feel welcome on your campus or see things that uh, could might not operate, you might not get their support for whatever you need their support for. So um, understanding what's happening in the world and making sure that there is a position is going to be part of the marketing as well. Everything right now is marketing. There's, there's not one part of higher ed that is not marketing right now because the higher ed as an industry is vulnerable and every single in, institutional brand is vulnerable. So while you're sitting in meetings, trying to figure out what stories to tell for your view book or your yield piece, or um, what stories you're going to tell in your um, in alumni magazine, there are other things going on that people are seeing and they're using to make decisions about the quality of your school, the inclusion that you have at your school, the equity that you have at your school, whether you have planned for it in your marketing calendar or not. So it's important that you understand that everything is marketing. If you operate as humans first, you should be good. All right, well, that seems like a great place to wrap. Thanks to both of you. Uh, one of the things we like to do as we are ending our episodes is to get a little glimpse into your lives beyond higher education. Um, so our question this week's, what are your side hustles? There is no life beyond higher ed. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> no, there is uh, not. <laughs> so um, I like to write um, and I have started a little food blog on the side on Instagram. Um, it is called the Full Belly Blogger. And I just talk about food and books I've read and organizations that I love um, who are supporting important parts of the restaurant industry. Um, shout out to the Giving Kitchen here. Um, and it's just a thing that I love to do. I'm also studying for my second level sommelier test because I love wine and um, I like to learn about it. And uh, so yeah, that's my side hustle. So I am working in the United States as a foreigner with a work visa, which means I haven't been allowed to have any paid side hustles uh, other than my main job until very recently when my status changed. So I'm happy to say that I now write for Vault. I copy edit and do media design by commission. Uh, and I also play tabletop role-playing games like Dungeons and Dragons and Call of Cthulhu. The last one there isn't paid, but that is a-okay. Kevin, where do we find you? Uh, on Twitter, I am Kevin C. Tyler, number two, Tyler is T-Y-L-E-R. Um, and then I am K-C Tyler on Instagram outside of the Full Belly Blogger. Well, that's a wrap. We're grateful to both of our guests for taking their time to join us today. And we're looking forward to more great conversations with higher ed thought leaders in the weeks and months to come. If you'd like to explore our topic further, please feel free to reach out to me on Twitter at hdotchel. 